Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Grimdark History Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Agnew. This podcast, if you've never heard it before, is a podcast that um, is a history podcast that also takes a look at the historical reality of the world's people and places of popular fiction. So uh, season one of our podcast has been exploring the historical times and places of the Warhammer 40,000 fictional universe. And this episode specifically is part three of a three-part series exploring uh, Babylon, Greater Mesopotamia, and the fall of Babylon, uh, fall of the Tower of Babylon. First episode of the series, we live through a fictional reimagining of what the experience might have been for somebody inside a city that was being sieged at this time. In the second episode of the series, we took a look at the greater overview of the Mesopotamian region and the history of it from the uh, start, or pardon me, from the end of the Uruk period and the start of the Akkadian Empire to the rise of Assyria. We also explored the religion of Babylon, the society of Mesopotamia, and the types of people that you would encounter within greater Mesopotamia and its connection to the rest of the world. And in this episode, we're going to be tackling the last pieces of history, the Assyrians, the Bronze Age collapse, and then we're finally going to get to the destruction of the Tower of Babylon. If you haven't listened to the first two episodes, I would recommend you do it. Um, it's just the last two episodes in this series. But uh, if you haven't, uh, we'll should be just fine diving right in. Uh, spoiler alert, though, we are going to be uh, discussing some novels from the Warhammer 40,000 universe. Uh, we'll be talking about sections of the novels Mortis and The End and the Death, Volume 1. I will be providing a spoiler alert ahead of that section as soon as we get to that. So uh, if you're okay with a little bit of spoiler, we're just going to be talking about a couple of paragraphs out of each of the books. So I don't think it will be a huge surprise. Uh, but I'll let you know just before we get to that if you wanted to, to stop the podcast or skip ahead, which is fine. Um, but that's really what our podcast is about is, is the history of the fiction, you know, the historical reality that the fiction talks about. Um, so thanks very much. We're going to get right into the episode, but I just wanted to let you know um, it's part three of a three-parter. And if you wanted to listen to those uh, before getting to that epi this episode... Um, start that right now otherwise let's dive in thank you when we start today's episode i'd like you to ask yourself what are some of the most uh, invaded or war-torn or conquered places that you can think of uh, historically and when I say that, I don't just mean something that, that might have experienced, you know, one or two generations of war. That, that's horrible, obviously. 
what we're talking about is uh, a place that might be invaded you know one generation and then maybe 50 60 years later they're invaded again by somebody else maybe they break free you know revolt and then they're conquered again or maybe a place that's of strategic importance between the borders of two powerful nations and while these nations are fighting over themselves you know through time because your place is of strategic importance you're the one that kind of always bears the brunt of a nation at war now there are uh, dozens probably hundreds of these places that we can have examples of through history um, you know when I was trying to come up with this list myself what, what popped into my head uh, immediately was a couple of places one of them uh, being Alsace-Lorraine which is a, a border area between France and Germany that's um, always kind of been an avenue for troops to move through you've got to go you know south Germany south France to invade each other or do you have to go through the northern areas to invade themselves and you you'll see the same in World War one and World War two um, it was really the only two paths Germany had to invade France where the Allies had to invade Germany from France this would have been true um, back into medieval times would have been true of Napoleon would have been true um, of the Romans that was the one of the ones that popped into my head right away uh, another one was the island of Sicily and specifically the city of Palermo um, supposedly holds the a world record uh, through all of history of being one of the most conquered cities in the world was conquered as far as we know by the Sicani, the Phoenicians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Phoenicians, the Romans again, uh, Muslim Arabian Empire, the Normans, the Holy Roman Empire, uh, the Swabians, the Angevins, Aragonese, Spain, Bourbon, and finally uh, Garibaldi during the Italian reunification. There's probably more in that list that I missed. Jerusalem is one of those places. Um, you know, it was invaded by the um, Jewish, or the I guess the people of Israel. They weren't Jewish at the time. Then the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Ara the Arabs the First Crusade, the Mamluks, the Ottomans, the British, you know, that's quite a few people. Uh, Kiev, speaking of places that are fought over quite a bit, that's in the news a lot today. First, the uh, settled by, uh, well, I shouldn't say necessarily settled, but the um, Viking forces set up trading posts there displacing the na the native population that was there then the 
uh, Mongols, Lithuanians, Catherine the Great in the burgeoning Russian Empire, Bolsheviks, uh, Germans, uh, Russians, Soviet invasion, Germans again, uh, and finally Russia yet again invading. And there's other places like that as well. And I wonder in my head, what does that do to a native population? I know, assuming that um, they're not obliterated in one of these invasions, you know, what I talked about in my first episode of the series when we talked about the what happens when a city is sacked and certainly a lot of times in history a lot of populations have been utterly obliterated that might mean you know you murder the entire population maybe you just enslave them and disperse them throughout an empire uh, such that, um, you know, there's only one or two family members around um, and you just kind of lose your identity over generations. You could be, uh, instead of obliterated or enslaved, the city might be uh, integrated into the empire. You know, maybe they're uh, just mandated to speak a certain language, pay taxes, uh, maybe offer up some other goods and services to the rest of the empire. Um, you know, maybe if you uh, have a wonderful uh, reputation for building uh, naval ships, a land army might conquer your city and then uh, demand that you, as part of your taxes, build a navy for them. That happens a lot. Certainly, uh, the Phoenicians experienced that uh, quite a bit in the Roman and uh, Greek wars. Then there's other things that could be happening to you instead of being uh, integrated. Maybe you're uh, just kind of left as is. You know, you're just one of those little teeny cities that's on the way to uh, a larger, more strategic place. You're not big enough to defend yourself, so when an army shows up outside your city gates, uh, you just open the doors to them and say, come on in guys, what, what can we do? What do you need? Oh, you, you want us to swear uh, fealty to you? Sure, yep, yep. Uh, and uh, here's some bread, here's some grain. Uh, you need some more spears? Here you go, take what we got. Need a place to stay? Sure, sure. Let me cl clear out some families so that your your army can sleep in some beds. You know, whatever that is, um, probably variations of that happened quite a bit. You know, when you think of Alexander uh, the Great when he conquered the Achaemenid Empire, he did not go through and see besiege every single city he came across. You know, he would go to the big main city in a region, conquer them, and when there was no army left, all the neighboring cities generally just um, capitulated to him. You could be one of those cities. Or um, maybe you're uh, an important city, but yeah, not yet big enough, or maybe you're, you're not competent enough uh, or 
uh, you've been conquered so many times, you're constantly under the threat of being invaded that people are always basically, uh, you know, stealing, enslaving, or murdering, uh, you know, parts of your uh, population that would be strong enough to fight back. You know, remember when I, if you've listened to some of my earlier episodes, we always talked about what it was like uh, to be one of those cities forced to give tribute. Tribute can be in the form of money, could be in the form of goods, could be in the form of manual labor. So these are some of the things that can happen to a city or to a place or to a people as they're being conquered over and over and over again. And when you're in one of these border areas or you're in a spot that's of strategic importance, you know, you're, you're in one of the few valley areas wide enough to move an army through between mountains, or maybe you're not quite at the mountains that might form, you know, a natural geographic border between nations. The big boy on the block tends to conquer all the cities up to the natural borders that they would face. And, you know, the influences from these invading forces, they can leave different types of marks on your society. It could be cultural, you know, they leave a mark of language, certain ways words are pronounced, maybe just certain words integrate themselves into the language, they can change the shape of your religion, the everyday practices of the people could evolve or could go the opposite way. It might reinforce the distinctiveness of the city. They might, um, you know, instead of becoming one of those people that kind of gets a little uh, cultural PTSD of Oh, here's somebody else coming to conquer us. Um, you know, let's uh, give them what we can and maybe they'll move on. You know, you don't want to live in fear. Maybe the opposite of that happens. Maybe every chance you get, you fight for your freedom. Maybe as soon as the army that conquers you uh, leaves for their annual tribute again. They didn't, you know, you managed to maybe uh, lie and hide some of your wealth from them. Oh, you know, we, we had a, didn't get a whole lot of rain here last year. Our, our grain harvest was low. This is the only thing we've been able to get you. Um, you know, the silver mines, the veins, um, running, run low. You know, we we ran. We were, we're digging to find new veins, but but here's all the silver we've been able to get. Or, um, you know, we, you know, we had a lot of people die from plague this year. Smallpox ran through the population, and um, you know, all we've got for our annual tribute of slaves or people to be part of your um, army is just a small little group here. 
You know, you can think of different ways people build a revolt. You lie whatever you can in order to squirrel away supplies, whatever those may be. Supplies could be manpower. Supplies could be food, could be materials used to um, either make or purchase weapons. It could be the weapons themselves that you hide. This is some of the things that would happen even today if a people were trying to throw off uh, what they would see as the yoke of an oppressive civilization that doesn't belong there. And I wanted to open with this, um, I guess, uh, generalized question. Because, you know, one of the main characters in our story is the Assyrian people. And certainly when you think about the Assyrian Empire, you know, if you're at all done any research or stumbled upon uh, the story of, of Babylon and Assyria, you've come across probably some horrible things they did to the people they conquered. But there's a part of the story that doesn't get told very often. You know, uh, if you're... Um, a news person or you're somebody developing a podcast and you want to talk about Assyrians or you want to get uh, maybe uh, sexy with it, you know, something that's catchy and shocking to draw the people to listen. Um, you know, you can always hear that um, somebody, the, the news editor in the background saying, if it bleeds, it leads. So the more we can talk about atrocities and how cruel they are, the more sexy it is, the more attractive it is to draw people to listen to it. And we will get to that. It is a part of the Assyrian history and story. But before we get to that part, we needed to talk about what I was talking about at the start of this podcast. What's it like when your uh, people in a region that's constantly being conquered by other people? What would that do to you as a population psychologically? So much that it would ingrain into your collective um, social practices. This is one of the things that I like to think about when I think about how does Assyria start? Because Assyria is one of those places that's on, you know, the borders of a lot of different powerful people. So getting back to this little city that's on the borders of a lot of powerful places but not quite strong enough to hold their own. We have a city called Asher. And Asher today is in northern Iraq. It's very near uh, where, the, uh, where, where the borders of modern day uh, Syria, Turkey, and Iraq are. 
And Asher was just a city-state, like any other in the Mesopotamian region. But they didn't start out as their own kind of kingdom like Babylon did. Asher was the client city of a kingdom or empire called the Mitanni. And the Mitanni, if you're looking at a map of Google Earth right now and you kind of zoom in on Turkey, Syria, Armenia, and uh, Iraq, Iraq, you will see uh, an area that's roughly the size of the Mitanni Empire. If you wanted to draw a little circle, that would be in between Turkey, Syria, Armenia, and Iraq. That's roughly the size of the Mitanni Empire. They were at war very often with the Hittites who controlled a good chunk of Turkey. They were at war with other border areas. And this is in the early period. This is in uh, pre-Bronze Age collapse. We're talking about uh, somebody who's contemporary with Sargon the Great from my last episode. And what Asher does is what I talked about. You know, they squirrel away whatever they can. And every time the Matani show up for tribute, they give them their tribute and they take what they can. They squirrel away what they can and the Matani leave. And when the Matani leave, the city of Asher, when they think they're ready, they declare independence and they try to build their own kingdom and then the Mitanni come and beat them up a bit and conquer them again or the kingdom of Mesopotamia the kingdom of Babylon they will show up and they'll conquer them and then they'll leave and then the city of Asher will declare independence and the Babylonians will come back and fight them maybe they'll win, maybe they won't or there are border areas. There's lots and lots of different cultures and tribes around, especially around the areas of uh, Iraq and Armenia and Georgia. There's lots of little uh, tribes and little city-states there, and they're always coming down into uh, Mesopotamia and Anatolia and raiding so Asher is one of these places that just happens to have the luck of being a spot that's kind of at the edges of a lot of different kingdoms and nobody really wants to fully conquer them, but they show up, they conquer them, they might raid the city, they might say, okay, you're ours now, but then they turn around and leave because at this time, this period, there's a season of war. Everybody who shows up for battle has to go back to the fields to uh, bring in the harvest at the end of the growing season. That usually means the end of the war season. And when the war season ends, there's no armies around. 
So you as a city can do whatever you want until the next season of war starts up. And then there might be a raiding party from the Armenian area, from the Zagros Mountains in Iraq. The Babylonians might show up. The Mitanni might come back. The Hittites might invade. There's dozens and dozens of different uh, civilizations around here. And Asher has to deal with all of this. And so Asher, sometimes, like I said, they will throw off the yoke and they will become an independent kingdom or city-state for a while. They will be able to successfully raid and even conquer some surrounding cities or city-states. But the season of war keeps coming up and they keep going back to the harvest. And then they're also dealing with tribal raiders that are very, very good at showing up with their superior horses and and, uh, mounted soldiers raiding the cities for everything that was good and movable wealth and then disappearing into the mountains again. So this is a struggle for the early Assyrian kingdom. It's conquered, it's reconquered, it gains its independence, it loses it, it becomes part of the Mitanni Empire, it isn't. It gets raided from um, tribal horsemen in the Armenian and uh, Iraqi uh, mountain ranges, Iranian mountain ranges, sorry. So, but at some point, they do manage to separate themselves and make it stick. And when they do this, they have that kind of PTSD feeling of, oh my God, we're free now, but boy George, the Mitanni could come up at any moment, or the Hittites could show up at any moment, or the Babylonians might show up at any moment, and it takes time to get your army together. It takes time to find out where where the threat is coming from. And it may come from multiple areas at a time. You could get raiders coming into your northern city-states. At the same time, the Babylonians are coming up from the south. So there's a, a urgency, a feeling of, of, you cannot imagine a kind of urgency or feeling of panic that you might have that we don't have enough space between us and all these people around us who constantly want to invade us and conquer us. And your only solution, your only solution is you can conquer neighboring city-states and push your borders out so that if somebody decides they're going to invade you, you've got a buffer zone. You have time. They come, they'll, they'll show up at one of the neighboring city-states. The one, somebody that's on the edges of your borders, there'll be an army there, and maybe you can't do anything about it, but you've got a guard post there. Send a, a letter back to the main city. Hey, there's an invading army coming from the Hittites. we got to do something about that. Or we can... Uh, make sure we've got the army already there because we know they're coming and we've got enough 
buffer room between us and the invading army that we can pick the battlefield that um, gives us the most advantage. We might have a nice open plains for our chariots to move around in, or we might have a mountainous pass where the opponent's chariots wouldn't be any good, or they can't really get a phalanx together. They've got to line up, you know, mostly single file, move through, gives you a chance to, at the other end, kind of pick them off. You know, you think of the, the uh, Battle of Thermopylae-type scenario, Surely, surely there had to be um, landscapes like that in and around Asher and Babylon. So you can see that that would be an attractive option if you're one of these city-states that manages to throw off the yoke. You've managed to beat back the army decisively enough that you've got some time to breathe between the raids from the tribal horsemen in the mountain ranges and the uh, jealous and conquering empires of the Hittites, the Mitanni, or the Babylonians. So your only option, you can, you know, when I say only option, you can rely on alliances, but alliances isn't something that's going to necessarily last generations and alliances aren't guaranteed. People uh, aren't necessarily always going to honor their word. And I'll have some examples for that later on. So the really only thing that gives you any kind of guarantee is more space between your city and the opponent's army gives you more room, more time to get your own army assembled and moved over to fight them off. It gives you more time to be able to pick the proper battlefield that gives you the more advantage. So this is the early and middle kingdom periods of Assyria, the kingdom of Assyria and the city of Asher and the surrounding city-states. And just to give you the, an idea for how many different people either invaded successfully or raided successfully the Assyrians between the early and middle period, we have the Hittites, the Babylonians, the Phrygians, the Kaskas, the Nyari, the Manians, the Kassites, the Gudians, and the Elamites, and there's even more than that. These are the main people. These are the big boys, and in between the big boys, there's lots of little tribes or little teeny city-states, especially in the northern areas. So this would be the areas of Armenia, Georgia, northern Anatolia, and the Zagros Mountains. You know, in between the Elamites and the Gudians, there's dozens of little independent tribes. And these would even band together to form the kingdom of uh, Urartu. And uh, they would raid Syria, and Syria would in turn raid them back. They had a reputation for ha having the best horses. 
So Assyria would often do a combination of punitive raids, go there and teach them a lesson, you know, handicap them a bit so they can't raid them, but also um, a raid just for wealth. They want those horses. They want whatever wealth they have. Lots of uh, gold and silver and whatnot and metals in the mountains. And to give you an idea of the types of people the Assyrian army is. Now there would be um, chariots, not in the early phases, but um, kind of in the late early kingdom into the middle kingdom. Chariots became a, a popular cavalry choice, but you'd also have archers, sling throwers, spear throwers, You'd have swords and shields, and then you would have, and I'm going to read it to you in the words of the Assyrians, their type of, I guess you want to call it their special forces or their elite commando squad. Quote, They are furious, raging, taking forms strange as Anzu. They charge forward furiously into the fray without armor. They had stripped off their breastplates, discarded their clothing, tied up their hair, and polished their weapons. The fierce, heroic men danced with sharpened weapons, and they blasted at one another like struggling lions. With eyes flashing and particles drawn in a whirlwind swirled around in combat. Death, as if on a day of thirsting, slakes itself at the sight of the warrior. End quote. This was written on an epic poem um, by Assyrian king Tukulti Ninurta. And if you, uh, you'll find a lot of stuff online describing this as berserkers, and it certainly sounds like it naked warriors stripping off their armor, tying up their hair polishing their weapons so the flash in the sun and then rushing at each other like struggling lions eyes flashing you can just imagine what uh, an army of increased naked warriors charging at you with flashing eyes and flashing swords uh, kind of like a, uh, a, you know, a cavalry charge. Only not cavalry, obviously. It's infantry. But you can imagine a charge of screaming warriors. You know, they're all naked or anything. They're not a whole lot on the defense side. But if they throw themselves at you in insanity, just trying to murder you at any, at any risk possible... You know, death as if on the day of thirsting slakes itself at the sight of the warrior. This is somebody who, when they show up, a lot of people are going to die. This would be, if it existed, the Assyrian special forces, their elite shock troops. And you can imagine on a field of battle, showing up with your peasants in your um, spears and shields all lined up in a row 
you've got some chariots and you've got some archers and sling throwers and some spear polders and some guys with swords and then the opponent army has the similar thing lined up opposite you in the battle you know just a few hundred yards away and then just off to the side you hear chanting you see dust swirling around from the warriors dancing and stomping and screaming as they move about without any order at all. That would feel kind of crazy. You'd be the nervous one, especially if you're the one that's on the flank that's facing opposite these people. And then when the armies start moving forward, you know, they're walking, maybe they're walking in in order, you know, marching slowly towards each other. And then just as they get in range of the archers, everybody rushes forward and you have a huge phalanx, maybe thousands strong of uh, people with spears and shields kind of locked together. You may not be a you know, total phalanx that you might think of when you think of a Greek phalanx, but it'd be something like that. They were moving towards you as quickly as possible to get within or out of the range of the arrows and into melee with you. And as these guys are moving forward, you have on the other flank, the one that you're on, you've got a bunch of crazy people naked with no shields at all screaming and running at you so fast they're not wearing any armor they probably be moving twice as fast maybe more than the uh, other peasants holding shields and wearing heavy bronze brush plates screaming rushing closing so quickly the archers don't have a chance to really do anything. And then all of a sudden, they just leap at you like a struggling lion right into your spears. Some of them just die right away and then drag your spears down. And then the next rows raid in amongst you. And then what do you do? You have no spears, no shields to push against, no spears you can raise up against them. They're just pulling your shields down and hacking away. Uh, you might break pretty quickly that that was happening. This is kind of what I have in my mind when I think of the Assyrian army. You have uh, elite, crazy berserker-like shock troops striking fear and panic into your, the opponent's army, trying to get that break happening, the all-important morale break where people start running. And then as people start running, all of a sudden, the main core of the army is there, the phalanx, um, the spears. You've got cavalry and people in chariots running around, mopping people up. This type of tactic let the kingdom of Assyria maintain its independence 
and also let them lead a lot of successful raids into the areas of Armenia and Iraq and into Babylon. Now, another thing that helped Assyria become the powerhouse that it was, was a thing called the Bronze Age Collapse. Now, the Bronze Age Collapse um, wasn't just one single event. There was a lot of things that happened to coincide all at once to lead to uh, a massive shift in political power in the Mesopotamian and Levant region. In order for me to talk about this um, effectively, I'm going to have to do one of two things. One is, you know, the Bronze Age collapse needs its own episode, uh, which I'm not going to do. Or I'm going to give you the extremely abbreviated cold notes version of the Bronze Age collapse. So um, if you're educated on this or you know you're, you're hearing me and you're like, hey, what about this? You're not talking about this. You're not talking about this. You're not quite right here. You're, you're generally right, but you're forgetting A, B, and C. You got D, E, and F. Um, you know, that's okay. Uh, this is not going to be an episode that's meant to be comprehensive coverage of the Bronze Age Collapse. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, it's going to give you a high-level, extremely abbreviated Coles Notes coverage of the Bronze Age Collapse. And what the Bronze Age Collapse was, was a uh, series of events that happened over several decades... There are unrelated events, or in some cases, some of the events caused other events. Uh, and these all led to the collapse of some significant empires within the eastern Mediterranean, uh, North Africa, and Levant area. And several things came and happened. One of them, probably one of the ones most people think of, is the Sea Peoples. And the Sea Peoples are written about in Egypt, but we know they hit um, a whole lot of different places besides Egypt. Egypt just wrote about them. And who the Sea Peoples were, we know who they were. Um, I don't have the names handy. Again, I'm not doing a detailed episode on the Bronze Age Collapse, but we do know who the Sea Peoples were. They were several groups of different people and some of them were uh, raiders, some of them were pirates from the Mediterranean, some of them were likely from um, Italy and Sicily area, some of them were from uh, Mino uh, the Minoans, some of them were from the Mycenaeans, some of them were from the Anatolia area. And what happened was a lot of different things, but um, what happened effectively is there was a huge migration of a lot of different people that banded together. And as they banded together, they moved through the Mediterranean, raiding and destroying cities as they went. So the Minoans' main island of Crete suffered. 
So did the several Mycenaean kingdoms. So when I say Mycenaean, those would be the early Greek city-states. You'd think Athens, Sparta, Corinth. Um, these places were uh, very early Mycenaean cities. There are a lot of little Greek cities along the um, edge of Anatolia on the Mediterranean, little colonies there. They were all hit. The city of Troy would have just been kind of sacked in the Trojan War just a few decades ahead of the Bronze Age collapse. If we're uh, going by what, uh, you know, modern historians think if the Trojan War happened at all, it happened roughly just a few decades before the Sea Peoples came around and the Mycenaean um, Empire kind of collapsed in and on itself. So Mycenae enters what's called the Greek Dark Ages. They stop writing um, well, that we can find. Their script that they use, Linear B, uh, that stops being written. And a lot of the major cities depopulate there. And a lot of people kind of transition back to a, a tribal, small village type lifestyle for a while. On the Anatolian side, the kingdom of the Hittite, the Hittite Empire, that collapses and doesn't necessarily collapse because of the Sea Peoples. The Sea Peoples do raid them um, and they raid successfully, destroying some cities. Uh, but what happens that brings the Hittite Empire down is one of those things I talked about earlier is never let a good crisis go to waste. The Hittites, much like uh, the Mitanni, are people, are a kingdom that conquers a lot of civilizations, the little neighboring city-states that don't want to be part of the Hittite Empire. So when these sea people, coastal raiders, start hitting the Hittite Empire and beating down parts of the army, they rise up in revolt. So there are kingdoms and little city-states in northern Anatolia, eastern Anatolia, western Anatolia. They all rise up at the same time. They take the advantage of the crisis in order to gain their independence. So the Hittite Empire um, gets mostly destroyed. There's a smaller little Hittite remnant that exists just uh, north of Lebanon for a while. Speaking of Lebanon, all along the Levant, so that would be, you know, Lebanon, uh, parts of Syria, uh, parts of Israel uh, and Judea into North Africa and Egypt. They're all raided as well by these sea peoples with a lot of cities being destroyed, along with the island of Cyprus. Not all of them get destroyed. Uh, not all of them are raided or hit, but... Um, as well, Egypt gets hit, and the Egyptians write that they successfully fight them off. Um, but they don't just successfully fight them off. What we know happens is several of these sea people groups have women and children with them, and they get resettled in the northeastern 
um, borders of Egypt at the time. So this would be the area um, of uh, modern day Israel, which would be, we would think of as the Gaza Strip. This is a, a very important coastal area. It's the last port before getting into the main areas of Egypt. There's a lot of little cities there. Um, so uh, what some of the sea peoples, which some of them people believe are uh, Minoan pirates, uh, along with other cultures, settle in this area along with uh, the, the existing people. And this group that comes out of this will become what's known in the Bible as the Philistines. So Philistines are remnants of some of these sea peoples that have uh, grown in with the natives Canaanites in the area. As well um, as all these little things happening, there's a breakdown in the trade of bronze. And bronze is the thing that kind of, uh, as I talked about earlier, it's the crude oil of the time. Uh, civilizations have a hard time functioning properly without bronze tools, bronze weapons, bronze armor. And um, along with all of this, there the breakdown in bronze, uh, that trade in the Mediterranean, the breakdown of goods and services that would have moved around the Mediterranean from the collapse of the Minoans and then the Mycenaeans, and then the raiding of the Levant area. There was a lot of coastal traders in that spot, Cyprus Island and, and such. And Egypt at the time isn't just dealing with um, mystical or mythical sea peoples coming out of the middle of nowhere. Uh, they're dealing with a raiding on their uh, western coast uh, borders. So they're struggling quite a bit. So this is a, an area where a lot of kingdoms that are strong suffer. They don't have the trade. They're not able to bring in as much food. They're not able to bring in as much bronze because some of them don't have sources of copper and tin on themselves to make bronze. So uh, a lot of kingdoms, big ones, suffer. And it allows little city-states to take advantage of that, gain independence, and build their own power base. And the kingdom of Assyria takes advantage of that because Assyria has a lot of iron. Now, iron is something that's been used for quite some time, even amongst the rest of the um, Mesopotamian area and Anatolia and even Egypt and well, all over the place. But iron's mostly used as a decorative thing. It's in jewelry. It's in little pieces like that. Nobody's really um, understanding the good way to harden it and use it as a replacement for uh, bronze in terms of tools, armor, and weapons. But the Assyrians are one of the first people that we know of that, are, that make that leap and they're often thought of as the first empire in the Iron Age because of this. So as the Bronze Age collapse, destroys or leads to the destruction of the Hittites, 
to the uh, reduction in power of the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians. It allows the Assyrians with their iron sources to take advantage and really establish themselves as a dominant uh, power after being traded back and forth from all these kingdoms for hundreds of years. Now, another thing that happens in the Bronze Age collapse, aside from the breakdown in trade, is um, there was famine and drought, and both of those things cause disease, cause starvation, cause migrations, mass migrations. So there'd be refugees moving all over the place, looking for food, looking for water, getting away from disease. You know, you think about our own real experience living in, well, basically a pandemic. We had several things happen all within a few short months, within a year. A, we had COVID-19 shut down basically most of the world. We had a lot of uh, farms and uh, equipment manufacturers and packaging manufacturers that produce things that um, you know were needed to move goods around. They shut down. We had a blockage in the Suez Canal, which cut off a major trade route for several days. We had a fire in one of the main um, uh, microchip manufacturers for the world, which caused a massive backlog in anything that had a computer chip in it. All of these things happened basically within a very short period of time from us during the COVID-19 pandemic, and we're still couple years later not fully recovered from some of these things and just try and buy a car today there's would have resulted in inflation mass migrations we had people dying out we had trade breakdowns we had wars we had a war start major one there's all sorts of things happened during our covid uh, pandemic that we're still feeling the effects of today. And I know it's not a pandemic when you talk about a small region like the Eastern Mediterranean and Mesopotamia, but for that area of the world and at that time, that's basically the entire world to those people. So if trade breaks down in the Mediterranean, if there's uh, you know, drought in a major cash crop area that other kingdoms rely on to import grain from. If your shipment of copper and tin doesn't arrive, you can't replace your bronze tools that have been broken or your armor. You can't field an army to defend yourself with. And if your civilization is starving, your people move out of the cities and farms to somewhere else where they think there's food. This is an abbreviated version of the Bronze Age collapse. And Assyria takes advantage of that, but Assyria isn't the only one that takes advantage of that. A lot of refugees flood 
out of the areas of Damascus and the uh, northern Saudi Arabian uh, desert areas. The Arameans, the Yemenites, the Suean, the Chaldeans, they're not sea peoples, they're refugees or tribal people moving out of the areas that are impacted, not necessarily by sea people invasions, but impacted by the breakdown in trade, impacted by um, environmental changes that led to uh, disease, pestilence, and food not being available. Well, the Arameans become a serious problem uh, for the Assyrians, uh, as well as a major influence on the area. Uh, but that's not the only one that happens. So we talked about the Philistines arriving in the scene. We have the Phoenicians in Lebanon uh, rising up to become a serious naval power and taking over the trade routes that have fallen apart from the fall of the Mycenaean and Minoan empires. Now, the Aramean people that I mentioned, the ones that are going to be a thorn in the side of Assyria, the Arameans become so successful, so populous in the area, their impact exists right up until the time of Rome and the rise of the Muslim empire that follows Rome. The, their language of the Arameans, Aramaic, is the one that becomes the common language in the Levant area. That's how populous and successful the Arameans become. Now, this isn't a story about the Arameans. This isn't a podcast uh, about the Assyrians. The podcast is about the destruction of the Tower of Babylon. But I wanted to give a little backstory, walk down a little rabbit hole, go through this little tangent to set the stage for um, Assyria and the destruction of the Tower of Babylon. Now, we've talked an awful lot about the history of Babylon, about the experience of people inside a city during a siege at this time. We talked about, uh, you know, the very brief history of the Assyrian rise to power. We talked about the Bronze Age collapse. We've talked about uh, Elamites, Assyrians, Hittites, Akkadians, Sumerians, Amorites, all sorts of different civilizations are in this time period. We talked about the types of people within Babylon and Mesopotamia. We talked about their culture. We talked about uh, free women in Mesopotamia. We talked about what a family uh, unit might look like. We talked about schools, about letters, tablets, all sorts of things we've talked about. We've talked about the religion, the kings, festivals. But what we haven't actually talked about yet is the Tower of Babylon. And I think we've set the stage enough that we're ready to talk about the Tower of Babylon and then its destruction.
So the Tower of Babylon could be a bunch of different things, but it's generally agreed that the Tower of Babylon, if it existed at all, and if people do think it existed, is the main temple inside the city of Babylon. This would be called the Ziggurat. You know, if you were with me listening to my episode on the civilizations of the Copper Age, I talked quite a bit about the Uruk period and the, the white ziggurat. This would be the similar thing, only a much bigger temple. We're at a later date and time. Engineering and construction technologies have improved. This would be the main temple inside the city of Babylon. And that temple was dedicated to the god of Babylon that I mentioned in my last episode. That's Marduk. It was referred to by the Babylonians as the Etamanaki, or the Ziggurat at Babylon. Etamanaki is a Sumerian uh, term. It means temple of the foundation of heaven and earth. It's the name given to the, the main temple of Marduk. And as to how it looked, it would have been a series of uh, concentrically smaller uh, levels or stories. You know, you got a big platform at the bottom. Your second story is a little shorter. Third story is a little shorter and so on and so on until you get to the top of the tower. At the top of the tower is where the statue of the god Marduk would be. That would be his home throughout the year. You know, when we talked about the uh, Mesopotamian religion, especially the religion within Babylon, they would take Marduk out of the tower occasionally, especially for the festival of Akitu, but also to visit other gods in other cities. But when he's not out of the city, um, you know, visiting other gods, Marduk is at the top of the tower in a holy place being attended to by his priests. Now, as to what the tower, how high it was, um, we've got a lot of different um, suggestions for how tall it was. And I'm going to go from... Uh, most outrageous to uh, what it probably actually looked like. And uh, we're going to have a little fun with this next little bit here, just talking about um, the different descriptions of the Tower of Babylon in different uh, myths and legends. Now, what I'm going to read to you is not, um, you know, chronological order of the descriptions of the tower. Um, what I'm going to read to you is basically... Um, most outrageous down to the actual description that we have today. So we'll start in the 1300s with an Italian, Giovanni Vellini. He tells us that the tower measured 80 miles round. That's 130 kilometers. And it was 4,000 paces high which would be almost six kilometers in height and a thousand paces thick, and each pace being basically three feet. 
14th century traveler John Mandeville also included an account of the tower and reported that its height was 64 furlongs or 13 kilometers tall. Now 13 kilometers would not only put you um, well above every single mountain on earth uh, by double or more, it would put you into the stratosphere. So there would be basically no breathable oxygen. You'd be well above any clouds. Um, you'd also have uh, basically no protection from ultraviolet radiation. Uh, but on the bright side, it would be basically calm at that area. There'd be almost no winds, no clouds at all. Now, the 17th century historian uh, Verstegen tells us that the tower was 5,164 paces high, which would put us at uh, 7.6 kilometers, which is roughly the height, the average height of the Tibetan plateau. So you'd at least be within breathable atmosphere, um, but you're basically at Mount Everest-type uh, elevations. He also tells us that there is a spiral path so wide around the tower that it contains lodgings for workers and animals. And other authors claim that there is a path wide enough to have fields for growing grain uh, in order to feed the animals used in its construction. Now, coming down significantly in height, uh, but no less grand in its construction, Gregory of Tours, who is from 594 Common Era, uh, he's quoting an earlier uh, historian, Aurorasus, who says the tower was laid out four square on a very level plain. Its walls were made of baked brick cemented with pitch and 50 cubits wide, which would be 23 meters, and 200 cubits tall, or 91 meters, and 470 stades in circumference. A stade is a uh, Greek unit of length, and if you uh, stick with me for our upcoming series on Alexander the Great, uh, stades comes up quite a bit. A stade is a Greek unit of, of measurement. It's basically the circumference of a typical sports stadium. So it's about 176 meters in circumference is a single stade. It also had uh, 25 gates on each side of the tower, which made out to be 100 gates in total. Now, keep in mind, this is just the temple. This is not the city. So 100 gates for accessing a temple, which is 82 kilometers in circumference. Each gate made of uh, bronze and wonderful in size. Now, a lot of people would think when we're talking about the Tower of Babylon to think about the Bible. You're probably asking, Jeremy, why haven't you talked about the Bible and the Tower of Babylon yet? Well, now we're about to get there. It appears a few times in the Bible, in the Old Testament. Uh, in the book of Genesis, it's mentioned, but there doesn't really give a description for how tall it was. The phrase used to describe it is, it tops the sky. 
which is really obviously a just another way of saying it was really, really tall. The Book of Jubilees in the Bible, it does mention the tower's height. It says the tower is 5,433 cubits and two palms tall. That would make the tower uh, 2,484 meters, give or take, which if you're thinking in modern times, that's basically three times as tall as the Burj Khalifa Tower, roughly 1.6 miles for our American listeners. The Greek historian Herodotus, he wrote a lot He lived um, actually in uh, Persian-controlled Anatolia. That's where he was born. Now, Herodotus wrote uh, in the 5th century before Common Era, and he wrote of the tower, the center of each division of the town was occupied by a fortress. In the one stood the palace of the kings, surrounded by a wall of great strength and size. In the other, we're talking about the other division inside the city, was a sacred precinct of Jupiter. A square enclosure, two furlongs, 400 meters in each direction, with gates of solid brass, which was also remaining in my time. In the middle of the precinct, there was a tower of solid masonry, a furlough in length and width, about 200 meters, upon which was raised a second tower, and on that a third, and a so on up to eight. The ascent to the top is on the outside by a path which winds round all the towers. When one is about halfway up, one finds a resting place and seats where persons can sit for some time on their way to the summit. On the topmost tower, there is a spacious temple, and inside the temple stands a couch of unusual size, richly adorned with a golden table by its size. There is no statue of any kind set up in the place, nor is the chamber occupied of nights by anyone but a single native woman who is uh, the Chaldeans, which he's referring to Babylonians. The priests of this god, Affirm, is chosen for himself by the deity out of all the women in the land. Now, uh, people who are familiar with Herodotus um, know him as one of the first, if not the first, uh, historian. But he's also notorious for his embellishments, for just making up things. So everything that you have from Herodotus, you have to take with a grain of salt. But I think it's worth taking a few minutes just to break down what I said, because up until this moment, this is the most um, um, descriptive explanation of what the tower looked like. He called the tower, uh, basically each city within Mesopotamia would be broken down into two divisions. There would be a fortress in one division. That would be where the king and the army would be, the guards. And there would be a second district, which would be where the temple would be. Now, he said the temple was sacred to Jupiter. That's Zeus. Um, If you're thinking in Greek terms, uh, but he, you know, what Greek people thought of 
is basically um, they thought of gods as interchangeable. And so the word that you would think of for your high god, your head god, is really just the same god as their head god. You just use a different name for it. So, um, you know, in Babylonians and in the city of Babylon, the head god is Marduk. In uh, Herodotus times, the head god is Jupiter. If you're uh, an ancient or classical Greek, the head god is Zeus. This is all interchangeable to Herodotus and other Greek people. So when he's talking about uh, Jupiter, he's really talking about the Babylonian god Marduk. So he's identifying the tower as being for the god Marduk. So the tower um, district is 200 meters square. And inside this 200 meter district, there is uh, a temple and the temple sits on a platform. So you have to walk up the platform. It's made of solid masonry, which would have been um, composed of waterproof or glazed bricks at the time. And on top of the platform is another uh, platform. And on that is another platform. So we have uh, concentrically smaller towers, platforms, each setting on each other. So you can think of, uh, you know, a pyramid, but not a pyramid, you know, that kind of um, tapering shape, but of uh, individual um, stories of, of temple built on top of each other. And as you uh, access the temple, you're walking a path around the side of it. So you'd be thinking, you know, you, you walk up to the, the temple, you go through one of these giant brass gates to access the temple district. And in there, you're seeing the first platform of the tower, which is solid masonry and about 200 meters square, 200 meters on each side. So that's quite a massive base to the tower. And then on the side of that base, there would be a path that you would walk probably several people wide, enabling you to walk up to the tower and it would wind all the way around the tower. And we have eight platforms in height going around the tower. Now he doesn't tell us how tall the tower is, but he does tell us halfway up the tower. So we're, we're on the fourth level of the tower going up to eight in total. On that halfway point, you'd be well above the city. And at that point, there'd be a resting area. You almost call it a, a look-off point. If you were thinking, if you are building a modern tower today, uh, you'd have a spot for tourists or travelers to be able to stop and rest. You can imagine how tired you'd be uh, walking up a several hundred meter uh, hill stop, rest, enjoy the view, maybe uh, begin kind of getting that communion feeling of being close to a god, a sky god, as you rise above the plains. Remember, Babylon is on a huge plain. And as you get up to the top of the tower, you're at the eighth level now, you'd be well above the entirety of the city. 
You could look out basically to the end of the earth. And as you go inside the actual temple area, this would be where pilgrims would be received, where they would give offerings to Marduk. In there, you would see a giant couch that would be uh, richly adorned, is how it's described. So how you might imagine it would be draped in fine, the finest linens, maybe even um, silk that might have made its way from China. It might have, um, you know, the, the most ambitiously decorated um, linen cloth, might have jewelry adorned on it, bits of gold, silver, maybe the skins from um, lions and other animals might drape around the area. Now, if you'll notice, Herodotus says there's no statue there. Now, it could be the statue of Marduk's already gone by the time um, Herodotus gets there. It could be Herodotus is uh, making a third-hand or second-hand account. You know, somebody, he's talking to somebody who was there or talking to somebody who knew somebody who was there. You know, this is the type of people that Herodotus gets uh, when he's building his histories. So there might have been a statue to Marduk there, or there might not have been. Marduk could have been um, in his chambers. He could have been getting um, bathed, sung to, could have been visiting out, uh, could have been out visiting another god during the time of the visit. Remember I talked about how the Babylonians took their gods to visit other gods. But while Marduk, the statue, existed within the city, he would be in this temple, maybe lazing out on the couch and attending to Marduk or attending to the temple there was just a single native Babylonian woman who was chosen because she was foremost out of all the women in the land. So this was probably uh, a high priestess uh, maybe somebody who was um, most religious, um, most capable of attending to the gods' needs, one who could understand the will of Marduk and interpret that um, the best. Or maybe that was um, the, ch the daughter of a nobile who just paid the right person. You know, who knows what politics was like, but I would assume that the, even in the temple uh, life, politics played a game. But regardless of that, the woman that was there would probably be one of the most foremost people um, who was to be respected out of the entirety of the temple. So we've talked about several um, fictional descriptions of the Tower of Babylon um, we've also talked about uh, maybe some second or third hand accounts from Herodotus. But we also have an actual uh, honest to goodness description of what the tower actually looked like. This was described on a cuneiform tablet from the city of Uruk, which would have been written at approximately 229 before Common Era. 
and this was actually a copy of an even older tablet. So uh, Syriologist George Smith, who translated the tablet in 1876, he describes the height of the tower as seven stalks, which would be approximately 91 meters, and had a square base of 91 meters on each side that was made from mud bricks with large stairs discovered around the south side of the tower and a triple gate connecting the tower with the temple district and also a large gate on the east side of the tower which would have connected it to what's called the sacred processional road from the city of Babylon uh, which has actually been reconstructed in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. Now, I know 91 meters is a far cry from 13 kilometers in height, but still, when you think of the time and age that this tower would have been built back in the early Bronze Age, 91 meters, basically uh, 9 to 10 stories tall, um, for an eight-story building is a monumental achievement in architecture, uh, uh, construction, and mathematics. So you can imagine how impressive uh, that tower would be to be basically made out of, uh, you know, uh, glazed mud bricks. Now, I say glazed mud bricks um, in all likelihood uh, this tower, and I say all likelihood, it's almost a certain reality, this tower was not made out of gla glazed mud bricks right from the get-go. I've mentioned earlier several times mud brick. Mud brick is uh, clay that's been formed in a, uh, in a brick-shaped mold and either baked in a kiln or just left out in the sun to harden for a while. So uh, it wasn't glazed, it wasn't waterproof, at least certainly not when it was first built. Now this is an arid uh, climate where Babylon exists. So the tower, whatever its original construction was, an original height was, would certainly have deteriorated amongst the timeline of the Babylonian uh, empire. And also the city, as I will get to, you know, by the end of this episode, um, was raided several times. And at least a couple of those times, the tower was actually destroyed. Talk about those. So the tower wouldn't have been a single immutable structure that existed from the start of Babylon in the uh, Akkadian period straight up into the Assyrian times. It would have been uh, built, maybe worn out if a rainstorm had gone through several times. Some of the bricks would need to be taken down, replaced. Would have been rebuilt several times. Maybe uh, sometimes it would have been completely torn down and built again with uh, somebody who had a more grander way of doing things. Maybe the tower is just a couple stories to start. 
and then somebody tore it down when they said, you know, we can build four or five stories easy. Let's tear it down, build a, build something three times as tall. It'll be that more impressive to our god Marduk. And you can imagine every few generations the tower needing to be rebuilt. And then at some point along the timeline, somebody discovered that you could build a glaze uh, that you can cover mud brick and mortar with made out of bitumen and that glaze would make the brick waterproof and it would last a lot longer than normal mud brick left out into to be exposed to the elements now that we've talked about what information we have about what the tower actually looked like or at least the outside of the tower how tall it is um, you know its shape how to get into it how to walk up around it We've got an idea of its grandness. Let's actually start pulling in some of the text from the Warhammer 40,000 lore and compare that to what we've gone over so far and what we know about the time and people in this world. So I'm going to start with uh, an opening and spoiler alert here minor spoiler alert we're going to start with a, just a quick paragraph from the novel End in the Death Volume 1 There was a great tower, he says it was called by some Etamananki and stood at a place called Babylon or Babel I'm sure that means nothing to any of you because the scriptures no longer taught it means something to me, said Acte. Was it real? It was, says all. The culture that built it had power. They were a dangerous obstruction to his plans. A danger to everything, actually. They had weaponized language. Anuncia, they called it. I was his war master, his friend. We campaigned and brought them down. I thought we'd burn everything, but to my great disappointment, it turned out he wanted Anuncia for his, old pur his own purposes. So we have from this that we are definitely talking about the Etamanaki Tower that we were talking about earlier. We know we're definitely talking about the same thing, the same place, the same tower, the same building that the Babylonians themselves had within their very city of Babylon. So we definitely know we're talking about the same towers of Babylon here. We're talking about the Temple of Marduk inside the city of Babylon. Now our next quote is got more meat to it. Our, our first quote was really just to make sure um, we're at least in the right place. We're, we're talking about Babylon and uh, the city of Babylon and the Tower of Marduk, uh, which we got. Uh, so we know from the end of the death, volume one, that we're, we're definitely haven't been wasting our time here for three, four hours talking about the wrong place. Our next quote is going to be a little more meaty, though. This comes from the novel Mortis. 
And this part is probably a much more significant spoiler alert. So if you haven't read the novel Mortis, you might want to skip ahead um, several minutes here. Or basically, to the, you might as well just actually end the podcast episode right here and come back once you've read the novel. Uh, but if you have read the novel, we're going to move on. And if you don't care for some spoilers, then uh, let's enjoy. And we're going to give our next quote right now about what did the Tower of Babylon look like? The soldiers who reached the chamber at the heart of the tower died before they could cross the threshold. Armor tore, bodies blasted back up into the air, and then burst apart in turn. Armor plates crushed in on flesh and mashed bones. Legs sank into marble that was now liquid. Pieces of shattered armor extended into smears of blinding light. Time froze. Flesh slid into red ribbons, organs and muscle, peeling away and unraveling into nothing. The air was red and screaming. At the center of the chamber beyond the door, twenty figures stood still. Hands locked together, mouths open, lips and tongues charring as they spoke, runnels of blood crusting their cheeks. Frost covered the obsidian beneath their feet, Spears of flame crawled over the silver pillars behind each of them. Words covered every inch of the floor, walls, and domed ceiling. Above and beyond it, the tower rose into the sky, reached up to touch heaven. The circle of twenty spoke and sung, but they were using no tongue of men. Unwords and null sounds came from their throats biting chunks out of the shouts and screams of the soldiers trying to get into the chamber. Enough. The words somehow carried through the babble of unwords pouring from the twenty. There was a figure at the door. Blood streaked his armor and face. His crown gleamed like a circle of flame. The circle of twenty trembled. The man in the crown grimaced and then stepped into the chamber. The air around him thickened, he pushed on, his footsteps forcing their way down towards the stone floor of the room. The shriek of unsound rose beyond hearing. The man in the crown forced himself forwards, face set. Fire haloed him. The metal of his armor was red with heat. Shadows and rainbow light burst and spun in the chamber. The frost on the walls thickened. Dust and snow billowed from nowhere on gusts of wind. The man in the crown surged forwards. He was burning, the flush of his face charring, but still he pushed forwards. Light exploded from him, blinked to blackness, and then back to blinding white. Cracks split the stone floor, frost flashed to steam. A pressure wave ripped into the nearest of the circle of figures, tossing them up into the air, and now the man in the crown was coming forwards, not with one step, but with strides. Sword drawn, flame gathering on its edges as it rose, behind him soldiers coming through the doorway. And the circle of speakers and singers were twisting, panicking, the howls coming from their throats now, simple sounds of human rage and fear. Stillness. Complete stillness. 
faces frozen, embers and ashes suspended in midair. John Grammaticus walked into the middle of the tableau. All stood in the place where he had been when he had lived the dream in reality. Two steps behind the man with the crown and the burning sword. All shifted and heard the fish scales of his pearl-white armor chime as he moved. He watched John circle the man in the crown. Now, before I start digging into the quote and uh, pulling apart the meat there, just to give a little context for people who maybe um, don't even understand what it was I just read, what we have here is three characters... The two main characters, a man by the name of All and a man by the name of John Grammaticus. Now, John Grammaticus is reliving a memory that All has experienced. And All is living through uh, the raid of the Tower of Babylon. So he's reliving this memory and John is experiencing it with him. And there's a third character here, a man with a crown and a flaming sword. So this is the the gist of what it was, the, the context of what it was I was reading here. Uh, but the important part for you, if you've never understood any of this, is we have a description of the inside of the Tower of Babylon, and we have a loose description of some of the people that are there too. And that's why I read such a long quote, because in and amongst that whole little quote, was little little uh, tidbits of information that we're going to talk about right now. So in and amongst that whole description was little pieces of information about what did the inside of the Tower of Babylon look like. It had marble floors. It also had sections of obsidian that these 20 figures were standing on. It had stone floors, maybe also just talking about marble, just referring to it as stone. It had silver pillars. So we have an idea of some of the materials used in the construction, or at least to adorn the inside of the Tower of Babylon in the fiction. So I thought it would be interesting to see how close this description would be to an actual temple in Mesopotamia during the time frame that we're talking about. Now, I had to do a heck of a lot of research to be able to uh, confirm whether or not obsidian was even used as a construction material in Mesopotamia. And I took a long time, but I did find a paper or be more accurate to call it uh, an article written for the Journal of Lithic Studies. The article was written by Elizabeth Healy from the University of Manchester. The article was published in 2021 uh, by Elizabeth Healy, and it's titled Not Only a Tool Stone, Other Ways of Using Obsidian in the Near East. And the article goes into a quite extensive analysis and uh, proof about all the ways obsidian was used in Mesopotamia 
um, over ancient and prehistory periods. I'm not going to obviously read the entire article to you, uh, but what I did do was pull out little pieces of information that uh, reinforces or maybe refutes the example provided in the novel Mortis. So we'll start off with uh, the fact that we have these mysterious 20 figures, these priests in the temple of uh, Marduk, the temple of Babylon, standing on obsidian stones. Now we do know from within the Mesopotamian period that obsidian was seen to have mystical properties. Its significance as a raw material uh, can be seen in, by the collection of uh, Mesopotamian king Tiglath-Pileser I, who dedicated the material to the storm god Adad. Sargon II, also I think a, a, an Assyrian king, he lists obsidian as among the precious stones dedicated to the god Marduk. So Marduk is, of course, the god that inhabits the Etmanaki, the temple of Babylon. So we have a direct connection from an actual Mesopotamian king, Sargon II, to its use specifically in the temple of Babylon. So I like that, that we have obsidian inside the temple of Marduk, also in the novel, and we can find examples of the same material being used in the same temple in real life. Now we know obsidian was used in jewelry, and we know, at least from the words of Sargon II, that he considered uh, obsidian to have enough value to be worth giving or donating to the Temple of Marduk in Babylon, but we don't really have anything yet that says it's used as a construction material. It's This is something people are standing on. So uh, we did find um, some interesting things here, and I'm gonna read a inscription from an Elamite king. That king is Untash Naparisha, Pardon my uh, uh, my uh, pronunciation for any Elamite speakers here, uh, but Untashnash Parisha inscribed uh, a stone in uh, Susa, that's a city, and he says the following, I built a high temple in bricks of gold and silver, obsidian and alabaster, and I gave it to the great god and to Inchush Enoch, of Sian Cook. Whoever tears it down, destroys its brickwork, removes and takes it to another country its gold, its silver, its obsidian, its alabaster, and its brickwork, may the wrath of the great god of Inshushanak and of Karisha of Sian Cook be on him, and may his descendants not prosper under the sun. Now, Tongue twisters of God names aside, what we have here is an Elamite king. And remember from my first episode or my last episode on this, we talked about the Elamites and how they're constantly invading Mesopotamia, constantly at war between Assyrians, Babylonians. They're going back and forth. 
These are uh, people who live on the borders of Mesopotamia. They're in the southeastern Iranian, re- or pardon me, southwestern Iranian region, primarily on the Persian Gulf coast, and they border between Iran and Iraq. These is, this is the Elamite region. It's uh, mountainous, but there's also um, some plains areas there for farmlands and, and whatnot. So this Elamite king, Untashnaparisha, he's built a temple, and in the temple he has bricks of gold, bricks of silver, obsidian, and alabaster. This is the important part here. This is materials being used in the construction or the adornment or the decoration of a Mesopotamian temple. So thank you very much, Elizabeth Healy from Manchester University. Um, Her hard work enabled my um, internet research to dig up some gold here and we can confirm quite a few other parts of our original quote here. We have silver pillars, we have people standing on obsidian, and we have marble floors. Now we know for sure silver is definitely used in the construction of Mesopotamian temples. We know obsidian was used in the construction of at least some Mesopotamian temples. Now, the marble floors, that's a little bit of a, a up-in-the-air type of thing. So I'm going to throw a theory out there, and I'll let the Internet decide how they feel about it. I couldn't find, and I did quite a bit of Internet research to see if I could find uh, anything on whether or not marble was used as a construction material in Mesopotamian temples. We know it was used in parts of Egypt. We know it was used in uh, Greek temples, of course, and Roman temples. But that's a significantly different part of the world. That's not to say rich people can't get materials from different areas of the world. We knew it happened all the time when I talked about the world of the Bronze Age and how connected it all was. That was part one of my series on uh, Minoans and Theseus and the Minotaur. You can go back to that episode if you want to hear about the world of the Bronze Age. But as much as I tried, I couldn't find uh, anything on marble used in construction for Mesopotamian temples. And I was able to find... Uh, Elizabeth Healy's article on obsidian use in construction. So I'm thinking not necessarily that my my Google foo is infallible, but probably if there is any literature about there that says marble was definitely used, it's not well known or at least not well not commonly known to somebody who's not an academic within this space. But from Elizabeth's article that I just read you, from the quote I just read you about our Elamite king, he uses alabaster in the construction of his temples. And for people who aren't maybe familiar with what alabaster is, alabaster looks a lot like marble. It feels a lot like marble too. Now, 
when I think about marble, you might think about it being, you know, kind of the veins of colors moving through it. Alabaster doesn't generally have that look or hue, but alabaster can be pure white and it can have, especially once it's been polished, that kind of glassy looking surface that you think of when you think of a polished marble uh, stone. Now, alabaster is almost universally used in decoration. It's made, it's very soft. It's uh, also water soluble, so water will dissolve alabaster over time. So that's not something you would want to put on your floor. It would wear away very easily. But it might be something, or not might be, it's definitely something that's used to do carvings of people. So it's used in a lot of um, busts and and uh, sculptures. So I don't think our quote from the Warhammer lore from the novel Mortis um, is accurate, at least in terms of a, of marble flooring being available or in use in a Mesopotamian temple. Alabaster was certainly available, and alabaster we know from our Elamite king was used, but if it was used, it probably would have been more a decorative element, maybe a statue in the temple, or a design on a wall or a pillar. That's where we would see alabaster, and where somebody who maybe isn't familiar with alabaster looking at it might confuse it with marble. Now the next little bit of meat I wanted to pull out of that extended quote was the descriptions of our two figures in the story. We have uh, a man in a crown with a flaming sword and we have a man with fish scale pearl white armor. Now, I don't know about you, but I'll just ask yourself the question, what do you think of when you think of a man in a crown? You might think of a, you know, a typical crown you might see on the King of England. You might think of a crown of a Holy Roman Empire, maybe the crown of Lombardy, the crown of the king of england king of spain that's not what we're talking about it can't even be possible what we're talking about when we're talking about crowns at this time now the king of egypt has a crown but if you can picture the king of egypt you're probably not thinking of the typical crown you were just a moment ago you know, the crown of uh, the king of Egypt is really kind of a, a fancy looking hat. It's a combination of two crowns, upper and lower Egypt's, the, the crowns of those places together. But it's kind of just a big hat of, you know, a fancy elaborate hat. I don't want to, um, you know, talk down about it or anything. But you know, when you think of a crown and then you think of a fancy hat and then you see the crown of Egypt, you think... It's kind of more like a fancy, extravagant hat. Then there is 
Um, maybe you might think of, uh, you know, the period of Greeks and early Romans when we're thinking of crowns and we're talking about people from the Greek period and the Roman period, we might be thinking more along the lines of a wreath or a laurel that would be sitting on someone's head. And then there is, um, you know, the crown of the Persian First Achaemenid Empire. That would be more along the lines of a wreath or a laurel. We would call it a diadem. You know, it's a, you know, a circular object that sits around your head, you know, kind of like a, a, a bangle, but sitting on your head instead of around your wrist. It might have some um, ornamentation on it, but certainly not, you know, gold and studded gemstones that you would think of when you think of the crown of England or anything. So it's something that sets you apart from the average person, but it's not an elaborate fancy crown that you might think of. So we have our figure with a crown. I think if we're talking especially about Mesopotamia and we're talking about um, the influences of the region that would be coming later, you know, well, if we're talking about the Achaemenid king, he's wearing a diadem. And maybe that's what our figure with the crown is. It would probably be more accurate to call it a diadem. You know, maybe he's wearing something more akin to the crown of Egypt. But if you're sacking a city, fighting a battle, raiding a temple... Are you really wearing uh, the crown of the king of Egypt? You know, a large, elaborate hat. That's not something that enables you to get through doorways. It's not something that's going to stand up to the wind. Um, you know, it's something that's just going to be knocked off at the first chance it gets. You turn your head too quickly and the thing falls off. That's not something you wear to war. So if you're wearing a crown and we have our figure with the crown and his flaming sword, I would probably be more apt to think it's closer to a diadem that our Persian Achaemenid kings would be wearing or a laurel like our future Greek and Roman people would be wearing. Now the last piece of that extended quote that I talked about we've yet to discuss is the white pearl white fish scale armor of our character by the name of all from the rating of the temple of Babylon so try as I might and I spent hours and hours uh, looking for any examples of pearl white armor or white armor or fish scale armor in and amongst the Mediterranean for really any amount of time into the Bronze and early Iron Age and I wasn't able to find it. Now I did find 
scale armor. So uh, scale armor, fish scale armor, and a related type of armor called laminar plate or laminar scale armor. All of those were available in uh, Mesopotamia in the Bronze Age and Iron Age. So Mesopotamia had been using bronze scale mail armor since about 2100 BCE. We have uh, drawings and representations on the tomb of Kenamon, who lived in Egypt during the reign of Amenhotep II. That would have been around 1430 BCE. So we know fish scale armor was available, and you'd think uh, if you're the highest level officer of the king, you'd probably have access to that quality level of armor. So certainly a fish scale armor would not be out of the realm of possibility. Now, 8th century BCE Assyrian charioteers um, often wore full body laminar or scale mail armor from the top of the head right down to their ankles. The head was covered in a coif or a hood that would be attached to the armor and that was also made of mail. And they, some of them would wear more of a short-sleeved robe, you know, go down to the, the knee height, roughly, rather than all the way down to the ankles. Now, remember, Mesopotamians, um, they're not wearing pants at this time. So when you think of armor, um, especially if you're thinking or trying to picture somebody wearing fish-scale male armor in Mesopotamia at this time, this is a shirt that extends at least down to the knees and oftentimes would go all the way down to the ankles or if it didn't go down to the ankles you would have a bronze armor plate protecting your shins so our character here wearing this pearl white fish scale armor he's wearing something that looks like that now, I did find examples of ivory used in armor making. And if you want more information on that, I talked about it quite extensively in my uh, episode on Theseus and the Minotaur. We discussed Minoan armor, but also Mycenaeans wore uh, used ivory in their armors. You can find lots of pictures online of ivory uh, plates used on um, helmets. So it may not be out of the realm of possibility for somebody um, who existed and uh, was living in the Mediterranean in and around the time of the Mycenaeans to later go into Mesopotamia and maybe he, you know, being, our, you know, the right-hand man of a rich king had somebody paid for and make ivory scale plate armor for him. I haven't found any examples of that, but it wouldn't necessarily be out of the realm of possibility for somebody who was fabulously wealthy and had the uh, thoughts to do it. Because certainly the skill to work ivory into 
plates existed. We have examples of that in Minoan and Mycenaean armor. And certainly the skill to make scale mail existed. There's lots of examples of that in the Middle East and in Egypt at the time. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that we would have uh, ivory fish scale. It would be probably one of the most expensive pieces of armor ever created at the time. But not necessarily out of the realm of possibility, just we haven't found any examples of ivory used in anything more than really uh, a helmet, but it's there. Now there's one more quote I want to pull out of the novel Mortis before we move on to who sacked and destroyed the tower. We know in the novel, obviously, it was the character, the emperor of mankind, as well as uh, Olanius person, or all together sacking the tower, but they're not doing it on their own. They're doing it at the head of an army. He's a king at this time. But before we talk about who he was, who the king is that destroys the Etmanaki Tower, the Tower of Marduk, the tower in the city of Babylon. I've got one more quote I wanted to pull up because it's going to give us something of a time that we can use to maybe make an educated guess or a reasonable educated guess as to who actually the Emperor of Mankind might have been in the novel. All did not reply, but bent down to where a crystal bowl lay on the floor. It had shattered as it hit the tiles. Pieces hung in the air above the impact point. He saw the image of a bull-headed man, neck thrown back as another man opened its throat with a knife. Now, why I wanted to pull that out is because we're talking about a specific piece of technology here we have a shattered crystal bowl. Now, we could be talking about, or when I say we, the author could be talking about, um, you know, mineral crystal. And certainly that's possible. It was, uh, there's lots of evidence of various mineral crystals being used in Mesopotamia all through its history and prehistory. Um, right into Roman period and later, you know, even today crystals are used in faith healing and all sorts of stuff believed to have mystical power. But there's another type of crystal that maybe we're talking about and that's the type of transparent glass that we might be thinking of when you think of somebody talking about a crystal bowl. You're typically, maybe, you know, when you hear somebody say a crystal ball, you don't necessarily think of, um, you know, a piece of mineral crystal that's been carved into a ball shape. You usually think of a piece of transparent glass that is in the shape of a ball. Well, the history of glass in Mesopotamia is kind of interesting. The first glass in the form of beads has been around since about 1600 BCE 
discovered in around northern Iran and Azerbaijan. Glass tubes were found belonging to the Middle Elamite period. That would put us around um, 1600, a little early, when I say 1600, 1600 centuries, so around 1500 and around that time. Now, glass tubes were also used in Egypt and in Mesopotamia all over, as holding oils, holding bowls, holding whatever sacred things would need to be done. But transparent glass specifically, and that's what I'm thinking of when I think of somebody talking about a crystal bowl, not a crystal ball, a bowl, something you put liquid into or food. Transparent glass has only been around that we've have evidence for since about the 8th century BCE. That would put us in the early Iron Age and right in the middle of Assyrian dominance in the Mesopotamia area. So if when we're talking about a shattered crystal bowl, what we're actually talking about is transparent glass that's been shattered, we know our latest time frame we could be in is 8th century BCE. Now that we've talked about um, what was inside the tower, what did the figures, the characters look like inside the tower, what was actually there in history in terms of the capabilities of materials used in construction and adornment of the tower. What were, we've talked about this piece of transparent glass and what time frame that can come in. We talked about our fish scale armor, whether that was possible and what time frames that was available in. The only thing we haven't talked about yet, the only question left unanswered is is it even possible from what we know to put an actual name to who the emperor of mankind was when the tower of babylon was destroyed so let's talk about now all the different times that we know in history that the tower of babylon was sacked and or destroyed and let's see if we can put some dates to that that put us line us up with a piece of transparent glass being available. As we reach our uh, crescendo of the history of Babylon, and we get now finally at last, after a few hours of history here of Mesopotamia, we now get to the destruction of the Tower of Babylon. I want to draw your attention before we start here to our first episode in this series where we talked about the reality of what it would feel like to be an everyday person in the middle of a city that's under siege during this time. Now in episode one it was the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem we talked about. But that situation 
could belong to anybody at any time. And as I go through my list here, I want you to keep that in mind that what we talked about during the Siege of Jerusalem episode is something that would be experienced by the Babylonians living inside the city. Now also, when we talked about in our second episode of this series was how the power of Babylon waxes and wanes and it is a city that has a certain cultural cachet attached to it. So not everybody that would necessarily invade Babylon and capture the city, not every one of them would necessarily want to destroy or level it because you want to have the claim of being the king of Babylon and the prettier your your city of Babylon is, the more prestige you have as a king in Mesopotamia. Now, there are some kings that won't care about that, and we'll, we'll talk about that, but there are some that do. And this situation waxes and wanes and changes. And if you recall, when my last episode I started it, we talked about the stupefying length of time we're trying to cover here, 1,700 years. So we're going to go through 1,700 years of invasions and destructions and capture of Babylon in just a few minutes. So first off, we're going to start in 1,595 BCE. Now in 1,595 BCE, something really important happened to the environment. If you listen to my three-episode series on the Minoans, I spent the first episode talking about the collapse of the Thera volcano on the island of Akrotini and the eruption of the volcano, which was felt all around the Mediterranean. That happened at about 1600 BCE. So, and that's a guess. That is not by any means an exact date. But the eruption was felt all over the Mediterranean and it had some catastrophic consequences for the Minoans. But it also had some dire times for the Hittites who were just northeast of the island of Akrotini. Their empire experienced an extreme famine. They had reduced crop yields. There was famine all over the kingdom, especially in the city of Hatti, which is the capital of the Hittite empire. So the king of the Hittites, that is King Mursili I, and apologies if my uh, Hittite is not 
uh, up to snuff for my pronunciation. But King Mursili I started raiding and sacking every neighboring country he could in order to steal their foods so that he could feed his people. He raised the kingdoms of uh, Yamhad and Hattusi and all around uh, the Hittite kingdoms, but he also was so desperate for food, he took his army 2,000 kilometers just to sack Babylon and the surrounding lands and raided them for their grain. So this was 1595 BCE. Now, if you'll remember during my last episode, the period that follows Sargon the Great and his dynasty, there was a people from the Zagros Mountains that invade and capture the Akkadian dynasty and Mesopotamia, and Babylon is one of those places. They establish the Kassite dynasty, the second dynasty of Babylon. They rule for several centuries. Now, they probably would have sacked Babylon and several of the surrounding cities, but I don't think it would have been to the point of leveling the temple or utterly destroying the temple or the city because they established themselves as a dynasty inside the city of Babylon. So certainly they would have besieged the city and there would have been a, I guess you would call it, light sacking of the city. If there is possibility of having such a a thing as a light sacking of a city, but they moved into the city afterwards and ruled there for several centuries. And we talked about some of the Kassite kings who were significant people in building Babylon. Now, moving ahead out of the 16th century BCE into the 13th, we have our uh, Assyrian king, Tukulti Ninurta I, who in uh, 1200 BCE, you know, right around early to mid 1200s, he defeated the Hittite Empire. And then that same year in 1245 BCE, he turned around and sacked Babylon. Now, he would have definitely raided the city and raided the Tower of Babylon. Uh, He plundered the wealth from the Hittites and most of Mesopotamia in order to uh, fill the Assyrian treasury and grow his own uh, empire. And the Mesopotamian people, including Assyrians, now remember Assyrians are also Mesopotamians, they considered the sacking of the Temple of Babylon so serious that they assassinated Tukulti Ninurta I for his sacrilege. 
but we're not at the point of uh, crystal clear glass. We're in 1200s BCE. And remember, we want to get closer to uh, 800s BCE. So we're about 400 years away from crystal glass, but still, Assyrian king Tukulti Ninurta gave Babylon a thorough sacking. Now, if you recall in my previous episode, we talked about one of our main characters in the story being the Elamites from southwestern Iran. Well, the Elamites, uh, they have their way with Babylon a few points in our story. And the first is right here, and that's 1158 BCE. The Elamite king Kutur Nahunte I, he captured and plundered Babylon. And he did that because uh, he married the daughter of the king of Babylon and he felt that that was uh, enough to give him a claim on the throne. So he got his army together and went and killed his father-in-law to take the city of Babylon. Now we're getting close to our uh, golden time period of 800s, 600s BCE to get to our first example of clear glass that would tie us in to the novel Mortis and the Warhammer 40K's Emperor of Mankind sacking the Tower of Babylon. But we're not there yet. We're in 1158 BCE, so we're getting there, but not there. But our next one puts us in a reasonable timeline of seeing crystal clear glass. And that is during the reign of Sargon II, who was an Assyrian king in 710 BCE. Sargon II uh, waged war in Mesopotamia against Babylonian king Marduk Apla Edidina. Now there was a major battle and a siege of the city north of Babylon between the Assyrians and the city of Babylon. Babylon got to choose their battlefield there and our king Sargon II sieged the city there. And remember what I talked about what happens when you siege a city well he defeated the Babylonian army there and while he was moving towards the city of Babylon he used his political acumen maybe a little you wash my back I'll wash yours a little threats of violence you know nobody wants to be the bad end of having your city sacked but he convinced the priesthood in Babylon to support him and they basically opened the city gates for him so he wouldn't have sacked Babylon in fact he stayed in the city of Babylon for three years and participated in the Akitu annual festival there which I talked about in my previous episode on the religion of the Babylonian city but we're about to get to probably the thing that most people who are familiar with the destruction of Babylon is. 
and that is Sargon the second son, who's a Assyrian king by the name of Sennacherib. Now, Sargon II, that's Sennacherib's father, as I said, he stayed in Babylon for three years. And he didn't just do it because, you know, it's lovely weather there. There's a problem between Assyria and Babylon that's existed for hundreds of years. Assyria didn't like being under the thumb of Babylonian control any more than Babylon liked to be under the thumb of Assyria. So the Babylonian city, the city of Babylon and other areas in Mesopotamia and the historically part of the lands of Babylon city, they have a reputation of being rebellious. Now, I didn't go through all the little times that there were Babylonian rebellions under Assyrian control, where an Assyrian king had to march down into uh, Babylon, you know, central Iraq, and, uh, you know, siege a bunch of cities and defeat a bunch of armies. But that does happen quite a bit. And Assyrian kings take different approaches to trying to deal with this problem. And Sargon II, his approach was to stay in Babylon, participate in the Babylon Babylonian Akitu festival. He stayed there for multiple years. He worshipped Marduk. He participated in the annual renewal festival in Akitu. He was making attempts to build, I guess, good public relations, if you want to talk about it. He wanted to let the Babylonians know, hey, I am a Babylonian. You know, my name may be Assyrian. I may have Assyrian blood in my veins, but in my heart of hearts, I worship Marduk. I participate in Akitu. I'm one of you. And he invests in rebuilding the city and surrounding lands. So, you know, beautifying the uh, Babylonian region. These are attempts to kind of win hearts and minds. But Sargon II still has a relation, public relations problem because he deposed the Babylonian king, Marduk Apla Adina. And our deposed king, Marduk Apla Adina, is a rebel running around the Mesopotamian countryside, stirring up rebellion wherever he can. And Sargon, while simultaneously trying to improve public relations, is also forced to go around and hunt down Marduk Apla Adina and killing other Babylonians while he's trying to do this. So when Sargon dies, there is a period, and this doesn't necessarily just unique to Sargon II, this is a problem that almost every king 
in the entirety of human history experiences, there's usually some kind of danger in and around the succession, especially newly conquered lands. These are opportunities for newly conquered lands to declare independence. The state of the army may be in question, especially if who is going to succeed the king isn't a 100% lock or isn't somebody who's trusted to be uh, you know, a proper king. There may be bad blood between the king and some of his nobles, and they may withhold their support and take the opportunity of a succession crisis to cause some trouble. Let's renegotiate my lands, the amount of slaves I get, the, the taxes I have to provide and tribute. And then, yes, I'll give you my army as part of our deal, and I'll swear fealty to you. But until we get to that point, um, you know, let, let's let's have a little talk about how much taxes I owe you. You know, that's the type of thing that would happen during a typical succession. Well, when Sargon II dies, his son Sennacherib has to deal with the succession crisis, and Marduk Apla Adina, our rebellious Babylonian king out in the wilds, he doesn't want to let a good crisis go to waste, so he takes the advantage of the situation and he goes to our Elamite friends, ones that Babylonians have had alliances with in the past, who are experiencing punitive raids from Assyrians. And he says, hey, let's partner up. You help me take my city of Babylon back. And, you know, the city of Babylon and the surrounding lands, the Babylonians there, they're just waiting for an opportunity. They will rise up in rebellion and then we'll have your army and my army and we can beat back the Assyrians. And so that's what happens. Our rebel king, Marduk Apladina, and his Elamite partner, they retake Babylon. Now, of course, they wouldn't have sacked the city. That's their, the city that their people are a part of, but they retake Babylon. But Sennacherib, at this time, his succession crisis is done. He's got a lock on control of the Assyrian army and the surrounding lands. And he takes his army and marches them south. And he smashes into the joint Elamite and Babylonian alliance and wins. However, even though he retakes Babylon... He loses track of Marduk Apla Adina, and our rebellious Babylonian king heads into the Levant area, and he stirs up more rebellion there. You know, let's not uh, wait on our Elamite army to rebuild itself. We need to cause more chaos. So he convinces 
the kingdoms in and around the Levant to rise up in rebellion against the Assyrians and against Sennacherib. And almost the entirety of the Levant revolts at this time. This is um, encouraged in part by Egypt, who is a perennial opponent and foe of Assyria. And so we have a whole number of little city-states, Phoenicia, the Philistines, Transjordan, as well as the kingdom of Judah, which is Jerusalem, Gaza, Byblos, Moab, Edom. There's tons and tons of little independent city-states and some slightly larger kingdoms at the time. And all of these ones rise up in rebellion. And Sennacherib is forced to turn around and deal with that. After the Levant Wars and after Sennacherib puts down the rebellion, he still has his problem of a continually rebelling city-state of Babylon. But he liked the idea of his father having a permanent Assyrian uh, presence in the city to show the local population that it was important for them to be part of the local culture. And so Sennacherib appoints his own son and heir to the Assyrian throne to be king of Babylon while he is managing Syria and the northern lands. And Sennacherib's son is a fellow, a prince by the name of Asher Nadinsumi. Asher Nadinsumi. And so this is a way to carry and keep Assyrian authority close to the ever continuing popping up of rebellion inside Babylon. Now Sennacherib still has his Babylonian king Marduk Apladina trying to deal with him and he tracks him down into the Elamite kingdom. So Sennacherib takes his army into Elamite, into the Elam kingdom in an attempt to permanently end this rebellious Babylonian king. Now while he's in that city, he, um, or pardon me, in that kingdom, he you know, does what you do. You raid and besiege and sack a lot of Elamite cities while he's trying to track down and engage Marduk Apladina. He never does quite capture him. Marduk dies there either of disease or old age, but he never actually captures him. But this doesn't actually stop the rebellious Babylonians. A new independent Babylonian king pops up to take on Marduk Apladina's spot. No power vacuum, nature abhors a vacuum. So when there's a power vacuum of a Babylonian king to um, tie a rebellion around, 
someone new pops up. Now the Elamite king, that's King Kalushu, he's not taking this laying down. He's got an Assyrian army running rampant in his lands. So the Assyrian, or pardon me, the Elamite king takes advantage of Sennacherib being uh, deep in northern Elamite lands. And he heads south and east and goes into Mesopotamia and he sacks Babylon. And while he's there fighting, he takes Sennacherib's son. And our Elamite king, Kalushu, he takes the prince, Asurnadin Sumi, that's Sennacherib's son and heir. This is the heir to the Assyrian throne. He takes him back into Elam, and he kills him. Well, I should say for sure he kills him. We don't necessarily know for a fact that he kills him, but we do know that Asurnadin Sumi dies in Elam, either at the direct hand of King Kalushu, the direct order, or while under the care of King Kalushu. But Sennacherib obviously takes this very personally. Now, if you remember how I started this episode, we talked a bit about the society and psychological presence of Assyrians. What is it like? What kind of people are built in a region that is constantly traded back and forth amongst neighboring kingdoms for hundreds of years? One that spent its time giving tribute in one form or another or owing allegiance to various kingdoms and then finally gaining its independence. What does that do psychologically to the people? How does that kind of ingrain itself into the collective society of Assyrians? What kind of person does that breed? What kind of decisions does uh, a person like that make when faced with extreme situations? So ask yourself, if you were the king of Assyria, if you were the king of a nation who'd spent hundreds of years being traded back and forth and raided, also raided by Elam over these hundreds of years, and you finally got your independence and you've been a dominant civilization for hundreds of years, controlling the region, dominating the area, what would you do if you were an all-powerful king, if you were a nation built on the fear of invasion? What would you do if you believed in the very core of your soul that you were mandated by gods to rule? What would you do with that kind of mental thinking if a foreign army, a foe that had invaded you for generations, yet again invades you 
and then steals away and murders your son and heir. Would you just let it go? Maybe you'd want revenge? And I guess you'd ask yourself, what kind of revenge would suffice for someone like that? Do you just kill someone important and hope that that sends a message? Or maybe you just let it go. Or maybe you need to send a message so plain and so loud that it would be impossible to misinterpret what that message is. You want to let people know what happens when you cross the king of the universe. And that is what Sennacherib does. So Sennacherib raids Elam for revenge. And he doesn't just raid a few cities. He's torching and burning down the countryside. No amount of blood is enough to satisfy or to set the weight straight, the balance level for the loss of the prince of Assyria. But he is forced to turn around his army because there is yet another joint Elamite and Babylonian army behind him in Mesopotamia. So Sennacherib has to end his punitive destruction of Elam and head back into Mesopotamia and face down a joint Elamite and Babylonian army yet again. They face off and it seems to have been at best a draw or perhaps a minor loss for Assyria. Babylon, the city of Babylon, stays free for a short time. Sennacherib heads north and then comes back the same year with another army. And this time he soundly thrashes the Babylonian forces. And we are now at 694 before Common Era. We're well into the timeline of clear crystal glass being technologically available. And we have Sennacherib, our Assyrian king, out for blood, dealing with this joint Elam and Babylonian rebellion that his fathers had to deal with. One that put down his own son and heir, the prince of Assyria. And I asked just a few minutes ago, what would you do? What would it take to balance the scales for the loss of the prince of the universe? Well, I have a couple of translations to read to you. And these are Sennacherib's own words about what he did to the city of Babylon. Quote, I swiftly marched to Babylon, which I was intent upon conquering. 
I blew like the onrush of a hurricane and enveloped the city like a fog. I completely surrounded it and captured it by breaching and scaling the walls. I did not spare his mighty warriors, young or old, but filled the city square with their corpses. I turned over to my men to keep the property of that city. Silver, gold, gems, all the movable goods. My men took hold of the statues of the gods in the city and smashed them. They took possession of the property of the gods. The statues of Adad and Shala, gods of the city Ikalati, that Marduk Nadanahi, king of Babylonia, had taken to Babylon at the time of Tiglath-Pileser I, king of Assyria. I brought out of Babylon after 418 years, and I returned them to the city of Akalati. The city and houses I completely destroyed from foundations to roof and set fire to them. I tore down both the inner and outer city walls, the temples, the temple towers made of bricks and clay. As many as there were, I threw everything into the Aratu Canal. I dug a ditch inside the city and thereby leveled off the earth in its sight with water. I destroyed even the outline of its foundations. I flattened it more than any flood could have done in order that the site of that city and its temples would never be remembered. I devastated it with water so that it became a mere meadow. End quote. Now I have one more translation to read to you about what Sennacherib did to Babylon. And so here we'll have our second reading of a similar translation. Quote, Into my land I carried off alive Muzeb Marduk, king of Babylonia, together with his family and officials. I counted out the wealth of that city, silver, gold, precious stones, property and goods, into the hands of my people, and they took it as their own. The hands of my people laid hold of the gods dwelling there and smashed them. They took their property and goods. I destroyed the city and its houses from foundation to parapet. I devastated and burned them. I raised the brick and earthenwork of the outer and city inner city walls, of the temples and of the ziggurat, and I dumped these into the Aratu Canal. I dug canals into the midst of that city, and I overwhelmed it with water. I made its very foundations disappear, and I destroyed it more completely than a devastating flood, so that it might be impossible in future days to recognize the site of that city and its temples. I utterly dissolved it with water, and I made it like inundated land. End quote. This is a very thorough effort at the sacking of a city. More thorough and devastating than what the Babylonians will do to the city of Jerusalem in a few hundred years from now. That's episode one of the series, if you want to go back and listen to that. But Sennacherib killed every single person in the city. 
And then he took the entirety of the movable wealth in the city back to Babylon. And then he raided all the temples in the city, including the ziggurat that would have been the Etamanaki Tower, the Tower of Marduk, the Temple of Marduk. He raided it all. He destroyed the statues there. He took all their wealth and goods, anything movable. He would have enslaved several thousand of the population. He would have murdered a whole bunch of others just to send a message, piled them up in corpses in the town square. And then he raised every single home, building and wall and fortress to the ground and then leveled it even further and then burned it all. And then he dug canals through the ruins of the city and diverted the Euphrates River over the site of the city of Babylon and flooded the entirety of it. So that when it was done, it looked just like a meadow. Not even an outline of the city was there. How vengeful, how thorough, how insane do you would you have to be in order to spend the time to do that to a city? This isn't something that happens in a few days. This is probably months of effort and requiring thousands of slaves and soldiers to do. If you're rebuilding a canal and digging it right into the ruins of a city and then diverting the Euphrates River, and this is not a small river. This is a river that flows so fastly it was able to completely wipe away the ruins and outline of the city. This would have been a torrent being diverted onto the ruins of Babylon. This is what a lot of people think of when they think of the destruction of the Temple of Babylon. And as we've figured out from our uh, quote from the novel Mortis, the only piece of information we have that would give us a timeline for who the character, the Emperor of Mankind, could have been was a piece of crystal glass which is only available technologically from around 800 BCE and later. And the first invasion of Babylon in that timeline was Sargon II, a Syrian king. But he kept the city intact. He even negotiated with the priests to have control of the city and have them leave him inside. The tower isn't destroyed until his son, Sennacherib, takes vengeance on the Elamites and Babylonians for the murder of Sennacherib's own son. And that is in 694 BCE. We're well in the timeline of clear crystal glass. And the city is thoroughly destroyed. Now, Babylon does get rebuilt later on. Sennacherib's new heir, his youngest son, Izaradon, 
he will actually invest in rebuilding the city and its temples, but it will stay mostly intact. Even Cyrus the Great, when he comes along in a few hundred years and he sieges Babylon, he leaves the Temple of Marduk intact. And when Alexander the Great comes, he also leaves the temple and the city mostly intact. So Sennacherib is the last time that we have on record of somebody definitely destroying the Temple of Babylon, definitely there to take away its wealth and technology, and definitely in the timeline of clear, clear crystal glass. And before the time of Sennacherib, there are other people who do the same, but they do not line up with the technology of clear crystal glass. Well, all right, here we are at the end of hours of history of Mesopotamia and the destruction of the Tower of Babylon and analysis of the Warhammer 40,000 fictional universe and how that ties in to the destruction of the Tower of Babylon from the novels Mortis and the End of the Death, Volume 1. We've been able to definitively place, well, reasonably definitively place, if we want to believe a crystal bowl is clear crystal glass and not necessarily mineral crystal. But if we do want to take that leap, that when we're talking in the novel Mortis about a shattered glass bowl, or pardon me, a shattered crystal bowl, we're talking about clear glass, then we can definitively place within the lore of the Warhammer 40,000 universe the Emperor of Mankind being Assyrian King Sennacherib who destroys and levels the city of Babylon. I hope you've enjoyed our journey through the history of Mesopotamia and the Tower of Babylon. We're going to end our series here, and next month we'll be starting a new series. We'll be exploring the Emperor of Mankind as Alexander the Great, and we'll be going through the history and background of Alexander the Great, of Macedon and Greece, as well as Assyria and Anatolia before we talk about Alexander and his conquests and try to tie that into the Warhammer 40,000 universe's lore and history. So join us next month as we start a brand new series, this time leaping forward several hundred years to the time of Alexander the Great. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoy it. If you're listening to this on our podcasts on Acast or on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, I would appreciate very much if you can uh, like the either episode or the podcast itself. It helps expose the episode to everybody else on the internet. And if you're listening to this on YouTube, uh, this is happening uh, probably quite a bit after the fact, just because it takes a lot of time to edit a video together, and this is a one-man show. But thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Goodbye, and have a great afternoon.
Bye-bye.